Anyone who accepts a leadership role should expect to become a target for criticism. And some of it can be very harsh. I'm sure we are all glad the election is over and hopeful that some of the hate speech and political attacks will lessen. But I doubt that any of us expect the criticism of President Trump to cease. Some of it is no doubt justified, but the level of animosity and hatred expressed and encouraged should make all of us cringe. It is, however, nothing new. If you visited the Abraham Lincoln Museum and gone through the Hall of Whispers, you know the attacks on President Lincoln and his wife were every bit as nasty as are the attacks we find in the political realm today. But sad as that is, sadder still is the fact that religious leaders often come under vicious attacks as well. Now, that's not to suggest that criticism of church leaders is never justified or at times even necessary. But all too often, they're targeted because they are simply doing what God has called them to do and because they won't yield to the desires or personal agendas of some in the church. A number of years ago, an anonymous letter was sent out appealing for prayer for a church in our area. The letter accused the preacher of kissing up to the elders and spending hours a day on the phone, involved in the most vicious gossip on earth. It detailed how one of the elders chased skirts, how one of the deacons drank like a fish, and another could be found at square dances in a local bowling alley, and that the husband of the church secretary showed porn movies to children in their basement. When I got the letter, I called the preacher. After we talked about the situations he was facing, I reminded him of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 a passage we always read to our Timothys at their ordination. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Without a doubt, the best advice to those undergoing hard times in ministry is fulfill your ministry. No matter 
what? Do what you were called to do. And that not only applies to preachers, but to elders, deacons, teachers, sponsors, nursery workers, praise team members, and anyone else who leads or works in or around the church. In short, it applies to all of us. For haven't we all been called to minister, to serve in the body of Christ? So what do we do when we get tired, feel unappreciated, or come under attack? We hang in there and do what God has called us to do. We fulfill our ministry. Paul was in prison facing imminent execution when he challenged Timothy to fulfill his ministry. Paul's ministry was just about over. But Timothy still had a lot of work to do. Things were tough in Ephesus, and Paul knew they weren't going to get any easier. The enemy never rests, at least not for long. So Paul told Timothy to hang in there to fulfill his ministry. And in telling him to do so, he gives us the motive, the mandate, and the method to do it. He begins with the motive. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Stop there. Now, Paul had commissioned Timothy for the ministry. And Timothy, no doubt, felt an obligation to fulfill the charge given to him by an apostle, especially from Paul, who was like a father to him. When Paul said, I solemnly charge you, Timothy was probably taken aback by the formality of it all. Surely Paul wouldn't have to solemnly charge Timothy to do something for him. But what he was charging Timothy to do wasn't for him. He was being charged in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to fulfill his ministry. You know, most sons look good in their father's eyes because most fathers are proud of their sons. And Paul was no doubt very proud of Timothy. But Timothy's ministry was going to be judged by someone other than an elderly father languishing in a Roman prison, ready to believe every good report that might come to him about his son in the faith. Timothy's ministry was going to be judged by the one who judges the living and the dead, the one from whom no one can hide, not even the dead, and the one who knows everything. Now, Timothy might have been judged too leniently by those who thought highly of him or too harshly by those who disliked him. But the judgment that really counts is the judgment of God. All of us in the ministry, and again, that's all of us, need to remember that. Some people will think we can do no wrong, and others, even the church, will think we can do nothing right. And in spite of what we might say, most of us do care what others think about us. We like to be praised 
And it hurts when we're criticized, especially when we're criticized unjustly or our motives are misjudged. That's why it's not only a challenge but also a relief to be reminded that the one who judges the living and the dead is ultimately the one who will judge us. He is the one who must please. But work for him won't be judged until his appearing. That's when our motives will be made known. When we stand before him, some things that may have been thought to be good and even deemed successful will be burned away like wood or hay or straw. But those things that prove to be pure, like gold or silver or precious stones that have been tested, will remain. And our reward will be based on them. Paul makes all that clear in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Now, the works of ministry will have no bearing on our salvation, of course. We're saved by faith, not by works. But they will be the basis of our reward in heaven. So everything we do must be done with full awareness that is being done in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And we must not become distracted by the praise or the criticism of those who are unable to judge us rightly. What motivates us in ministry must be a longing to one day hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what keeps me motivated in ministry, and I trust it's what keeps you motivated as well. So like the Apostle Paul, I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, fulfill your ministry. That's the motive for ministry. So what is the mandate? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth. And will turn aside to myths. The mandate for those in ministry is quite simply, preach the word. The word preach means to herald, to publicly proclaim, and that has obvious application for preachers. But it's also a mandate for everyone in ministry. We all have the responsibility to proclaim the word, to get the message out. Whether you are an elder, a teacher, a nursery worker, or a lawnmower, you do what you do to help get the word out. And it's the word of God we proclaim. It's not our mandate to share with the world inspiring stories or pop psychology or warm, fuzzy religious feelings or our political preferences. 
Our mandate is to preach the word. All of it. And since, as we discovered last week, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, we better be willing to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And we better be willing to do it in season and out of season. When it's convenient and when it's not. When people want to hear it and when they don't. Our mandate is to preach the word, to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort. To reprove means to make sure people know what's right and what's wrong. And Paul's talking about those in the church as well as those in the world. And sad to say, sometimes the world seems more ready to be rebuked by the word of God than, to, than do those who are most familiar with it. You know, it's been said that familiarity breeds contempt, and sometimes that's even true when it comes to God's word. When people know what they're doing is wrong, and they already know what God has said about it, telling them again tends to fall on deaf ears. Still, our mandate is to preach the word as clearly as possible. And we do so in the hope that the Spirit will be able to use it to bring about conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment to believers and non-believers alike. If reproof doesn't open the door, however, we may have to go a step further to rebuke. A rebuke is stronger than a reproof, and it's generally more specific. It may even entail pointing a bony finger in someone's face and then pointing it to the specific passage of Scripture that addresses their sin. And, contrary to a common fear, rebuking someone through an appropriate use of God's Word is not judging them. It's letting God's Word judge them. We are simply telling them or reminding them of what God has said. But we're not only to judge them through God's word, we're also to exhort them through it. To exhort can mean to plead or to encourage, and we actually do both through the use of God's word. We plead with people to heed the message, and we then encourage them to do so. And we do so with great patience. We do so through detailed, even repetitious instruction. And we give them time to process it and time for the Spirit to convict them. You know, most people aren't going to be convinced overnight. And even when they become convinced, it takes time, sometimes a lifetime, to put it all into practice. So we better be patient and keep on preaching and teaching the word. That's our mandate, to preach the word. And to do so even if some don't like it. And sad to say, even some in the church won't like it. 
because they will not endure sound doctrine. They want only to be entertained by a sermon or a lesson. That was true in Paul's day, apparently, and it's even more true in ours. Back in 1985, Neil Postman warned us that we were in danger of amusing ourselves to death. The television and a constant barrage of media was killing our ability to think. That's even truer now than it was 30 years ago. And it's something we have to be very careful about in the church, especially since videos and other forms of media have become so common in worship services. We've got to be careful that visual stimulation doesn't crowd out the need for a holy imagination and for thinking. There's a danger of not only tickling our ears, but also tickling our eyes. And we can do so to the extent that we become deaf and blind to anything that doesn't keep us entertained. And yes, sound doctrine is often something that has to be endured because it's not intended to entertain. Now, that's not to say that sermons and Bible lessons have to be boring. The Word of God is alive and active. And he who has ears to hear and eyes to see will. Any doctrinally accurate and coherent presentation of truth from God's Word should be exciting and life-changing. Some people won't want to hear it because they don't want to be confronted by the truth of God's word. And if they can find preachers and teachers who will share inspiring myths and make them feel religious without causing them to come under conviction, they will. Our mandate, however, is to preach the word and to do so whether people listen or not. God made that very clear to an Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2, we read, Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. That's quite a commission from God, is it not? How would you like to be called to be a prophet and told, people aren't going to listen to you? 
but teach it anyway. Make sure they know that a prophet has been in their midst. I love that. Make sure they know that someone who listens and proclaims the word of God is in their midst. Preach the word. That is our mandate. So how do we do it? How do we approach it? What's the method? Paul continued, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, when Paul says we are to be sober, he's not saying we have to lose our sense of humor to preach the word. Or that our religious demeanor should give the impression that we have been weaned on dill pickles. I know that's an old phrase, but I still like it. Kids, ask your folks what that means. Well, ask your grandparents. <laughs> you know, Jesus had a sense of humor. Try visualizing a man with a log in his eye trying to take a speck out of someone else's eye or a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle without laughing. To be sober means to keep your head on straight. To hang on to your powers of comprehending and judging and understanding. If you're going to preach the word, you must not lose your head. You can't allow yourself to become intoxicated by anything, by alcohol or by an inflated ego. You can't let praise go to your head and you can't be defeated by criticism. If you think everyone will appreciate what you do in ministry, think again. Remember what they did to Jesus. And when it looks like you are about to be crucified, remember the resurrection. You've got to stay on course. You've got to endure, to hang in there, even when the going gets rough. And it will get rough. Hardships and disappointments will come. And when they do, you endure. And when you don't think you can endure the saints any longer, find a sinner to save. Nothing will keep you as energized for ministry as will leading someone to Christ. We must never get so bogged down with church work that we forget to do the work of an evangelist and share Christ with others. If you'll keep your head on straight, if you're willing to endure hardship, and if you'll do the work of an evangelist, you will fulfill your ministry. And someday you'll hear the words, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. You know, as we've already noted, today is Veterans Day. And as we contemplate fulfilling the mission given to us, I think it is appropriate that we sing Onward Christian Soldiers.
After all, back in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul exhorted us to suffer hardship with him as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Let's commit ourselves to fulfilling our ministry as good soldiers of Christ. Let's stand.